1: Well, hello, Seattle, hello, Puget Sound, and welcome to St. Patrick's Day Radio. This is Happy St. Patrick's Day, and it's Happy Hour Radio. What a better fit! What a better night! Uh, funny how uh, the term wearing green has got a whole new connotation these days in the be- beautiful state of Washington. And uh, thanks for tuning in to Happy Hour Radio. I'm sure you're uh, having a pint of Guinness or a little bit of Harp Lager, perhaps a little Jameson Bushmills or uh, a little gl- something. Uh, Something something to sip on. And I've got something to sip on today, too. Although it is not Irish whiskey, it is not Guinness beer, I've got uh, some great wine from my friend Bruce Ochterman, who is the beverage manager at the Herb Farm, the venerable Herb Farm, one of the most iconic restaurants in uh, the country. And I have Joel Vanderbrink, who, Brink, who is the founder... Of Seattle Cider, go figure. So we've got uh, some originals here, some players in our uh, community, and uh, I'm super excited to uh, learn more about Joel and how he started uh, Seattle Cider Company, and also get a chance to talk about the fabulous place, the Herb Farm, with Bruce Acterman. Bruce Ochterman, welcome to Happy Hour.
2: Hey, thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me in.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thanks for taking a Saturday night off. I know you're always working. Wow, this is a huge sacrifice for you.
2: Well, the owners are on vacation, so I can kind of do what I want while they're gone.
1: All right. I love it when the mice are away, or the cats are away.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're playing today. <laughs>
1: that's that's awesome. Well, uh, let's talk about you, Bruce Ochterman. Uh, last time I saw you prior to the herb farm, you were um, the beverage manager for a uh, grocery store.
2: Yeah, I was uh, the wine, beer, spirits buyer for Whole Foods Markets, Redmond for about seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we really, really tried to focus on local quite a bit. And, uh, you know, Whole Foods was one of the big chains that actually allowed us to do that. So when the herb farm came calling, it was kind of a natural segue, someone that it was even more hyper-local than even someone like Whole Foods was.
1: And I know that you have a really cool pin. I share one of the same pins, the International Sommelier Guild. You are a diplomat, uh, diplomat. I like to say. Yeah. Um, tell us about your journey into the world of wine, beverage spirits, et cetera, uh, prior to Whole Foods.
2: Well, for me, it was kind of what I grew up with. My grandfather was Sicilian. He made a little wine. We always had that giant gallon of creberi sitting right by the table, and, you know, Grandpa would wave (laughs) over. He'd uh, hand you, pick up the glass. He'd pour in a little wine. He'd pour in a little water and slide it back to you. My mom would give him the stink eye because I wasn't supposed to be drinking when I was 12, but Grandpa didn't care. And we just kind of learned about his food. So it became a natural segue into just something I was always having and something I always liked. And... Then my real career, if you will, I spent 25 years with Northwest Airlines as an international purser. and did a oh, lot of really? inter- Yeah, I did a little international travel, and so I'd go to Paris and say, all right, I got 50 euros. Give me three little nibbles and three little sips, and what are you drinking and what are you eating? And I got to eat and drink my way across the world. And then when I decided so to... So more than uh, just
1: peanuts on Northwest.
2: <laughs> uh, well, no, that was on the airplane. I mean, on my own time, I got to do a lot of that. So it was... Uh, It was kind of an education in that respect. And then when I was taking my exams with the ISG, it was, yeah, I've done this stuff. I've actually been there, you know. I've been in Bordeaux, and I've been in Champagne and I've been in the Iberian Peninsula and tried these things. So it was really uh, a little bit easier for me pairing-wise, because I had some experience with them. Because as you get older, you don't remember that stuff as well as you could back when the young kids can with their young brains that they have.
1: <laughs> Synapses firing like that. Exactly. Well, that's a great, interesting story. Very interesting. Uh, traveling the world for 25 years at International for Northwest. Airlines, and that, that must have been really fun. Um, how many different sources of, of uh, ingredients would you have at one time in your command? I mean, were you like buying things from Japan and France and Germany and Spain and Brazil and things like that, or is it a little more focused? You would just have your French flights and you would just get stuff for...
2: Exactly, yeah. Everything was sourced from wherever you were going. So, for example, when we were coming out of Sydney, well, we actually got New Zealand lamb coming out of Sydney, which is well, a you little know, bit of a, a weird thing, but... Some more lamb than people. Yeah, so everything we were serving is what we were bringing through from wherever we went so we had kind of cool um, relationships with a lot of caterers and especially in some of those countries where you're only flying in out of twice a week we got uh, really good for vision. so we had a nice wine list back in the day and you know of course now airlines have become much more commodity driven than they ever used to be and A lot of that individual personality has gone away, so that was another reason. Unless you're
1: flying Alaska with Tom Douglas's signature cheese (laughs) plate. exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, which has been signature for about eight years now. I think it's pretty cute. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. uh, In your tenure with uh, Northwest Airlines as uh, international purser, did you have any breakthrough? uh, Breakthrough? Did you like you were the first airlines to have uh, you know brie on the plane or um, something from like uh, Calvados, perhaps or Anything fun like that?
2: Boy, I can't think of anything specific product-wise. Uh, the big difference with Northwest back in the day is it's, it's kind of this geeky little thing, but we were one of the two carriers that could actually pick up passengers in Japan and fly them other places. So we had a lot more international travelers from all these other locations. Um, so we were some of the first to be getting a lot of passengers from the Philippines and Uh, from Laos and from Cambodia and all these other countries that would come to Japan and then we'd get them. So as opposed to be a homogeneous Japanese tourist group, we'd have a lot more international folks. So we really had to cater to an incredible diversity of people and an individual flight.
1: Interesting. And I would imagine that is translated to the herb farm being a culinary destination now here in, the North, in North America, on our continent. You've probably had a host of, um, well, uh, cultures and uh, patrons and perhaps even dignitaries dine at the herb farm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what we see that is a much more regular basis now, too, I think, as international as Seattle has become, with the tech industry moving in the way that they have, the number of guests that we entertain from India, from China, from Japan, from South America, Um, from Russia has increased dramatically these last couple of years. I've been there on and off for 11 years, and definitely our clientele base has changed dramatically in that period of time.
1: Well, that's really fun. Um, obviously, let's talk about the Earth farm. Started in as a little, tiny project, a farm or something?
2: It was actually a farm, yeah, out in Fall City, and uh, Ron Zimmerman, our owner, it was his mom and dad that started it. Uh, Lola just put some chives out by the side of the road, and people put in money, and she made a little money on that, and it expanded, and expanded, and expanded, and they had a massive farm. The actual first service was lunches. Ron, our owner, decided that he wanted to show people they could make meals out of herbs. And he was the first uh, guy that was actually cooking there in a remodeled tractor shed. And then they hired (laughs) in Jerry Tronfeld when he was really young. and uh, Yeah, Jerry really took that and ran with it and really sort of created the farm-to-table thing. It didn't exist as a concept 31 years ago when they first started. Farm-to-table was just not something that people did they thought the best ingredients came from all over the world and they would fly them in and if you wanted to have a great meal you know you had to have the true Kobe beef as opposed to Wagyu from Snake River Farms you know and all that's really changed and the herb farm's been a big part of that.
1: Well certainly being there provides a very authentic experience but also there's uh, something to be said for the translation of someone saying hey especially for the culinary or wine or even ciders perhaps we want to give you our best expression of of who we are what we do and what this is supposed to be and the herb farm's done a great job with that Uh, let's Chauncey was there for 25 years, or
2: uh, he left uh, 31, yeah, almost 25. Yeah. Like 23, God, 24. What a run! Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic.
1: And um, I had the pleasure of dining at the Herb Farm uh, recently, for actually my very first time. And that's what happens when you are a restaurant rat, brat. <laughs> a rat. Yeah. You don't get a chance to go out. And when you, you know, when you kind of semi-retired from that business, you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to stay home because I can drink more wine. <laughs> don't worry about driving. But what a fantastic evening! It was an evening of truffles, if I recall.
2: Yeah, truffle treasure menu. We do that every um, every February, and the cool thing about it is we don't associate the Pacific Northwest with truffles, but they've been around for at least twelve thousand years since the glaciers pulled back.
1: Okay, you well, know. glad it was. <laughs> Ron hasn't been here that long, nor no, has Irvine. it kind of
2: feels like that sometimes. Uh,
1: well, uh, he was uh, him and Kerry uh, Van Dyke, uh, great proprietors, uh, very generous and very convivial. Um, let's talk about your wine philosophy. Obviously, being uh, part. You've had a chance to be international with mm-hmm. Delta, me, Northwest Airlines, and, um, and being at Whole Foods, you were uh, very local-centric, which is great, because I think as that, that uh, neighborhood, if you will, grew... A lot of people, it became something to celebrate. We love Washington apples and Washington wine and asparagus and Walla Walla sweets and Oregon Dungeness crab, et cetera, et cetera. Now, uh, if your wine philosophy, you brought three wines today. What did you bring?
2: Well, what I started out with is sort of a little bit of uh, progression like we would do at the restaurant as well. We often try to start with bubbles. And we've got a number of producers in the Pacific Northwest that make really exciting bubbles and sparkling wines. But every once in a while, you're looking for something slightly different. And about 15 years ago, we started collaborative projects with about seven different winemakers, and these things have continued on. And what you have in your glass at the moment is the sparkling Gruner Veltliner that we had made for us specifically. Now we call it the Goat Rocks because all the fruit's from just outside the Goat Rocks wilderness area out in Natchez Heights. And we sourced the still wine. We brought it over to our friends at Treveri Cellars, Juergen and Christian Grieb, do a fastidious job at uh, really just crafting some really lovely wines and Their price points are absolutely amazing. I don't know how they do it. And they sent it over some sample bottles with different sweetness levels, everything from bone dry to really sweet, and we hammered it out, and we came up with a demi-sec, which is about 22% residual sugar on board. Um, We normally use this in the wintertime, and the idea is... The shellfish that we're getting this time of year, incredibly rich, and it has a natural sweetness to it. We're using a lot of things that have been preserved, if you will, and some of those overwintered vegetables that also have a natural sweetness to them. So we intentionally wanted something that played off of those characteristics.
1: Well, I love it. So this gruner leaner, so you had the still wine, mm-hmm. and, and you they have had a secondary fermentation, obviously method champenoise, Correct. or traditional method, mm-hmm. as we yeah. call it now, uh, which means the, the added little uh, dosage, or liquor d'expedition, or mm-hmm. liquor entourage. Anyway, yeah. uh, we are taking... Tasting this Now, what's interesting about this is that the sweetness really accents some of the non-green fruit notes I get with Gruner. You, typically, Gruner, you're going to get asparagus or a right. little uh, lentil, mm-hmm. or um, but this sort of gives it more of that citrus or even, uh, even green apple flavor.
2: Yeah, it, to me, it plays a little bit more like a champagne in that respect because it plays kind of like a Chardonnay would with that apple pear aromatic behind it, absolutely.
1: Mm, and the sweetness, um, it is sweet, but it's a very... The acid is nice and high, and yeah. I, I remember, it's never about the sweetness, it's always about the acidity, because one tablespoon of sugar with zero lemons is sweet, but add ten lemons, and you don't taste it anymore.
2: It's all about the balance. all it's about, all the, about balance. the balance. Now, this is delicious, and this is proprietary. Correct. I think, didn't we start with this uh, that night, at the truffle night? We might have. I don't remember specifically. Every <laughs> every week or two, things vary, and so well, I'm, that's I'm, good. I'm focused on what we're pouring this weekend and what's coming up after, so... I won't say that they forget about things, but as you go through a number of different menus week after week after yeah. week, it's like, all right, what did I pour when Chris was here?
1: And yeah. what a lovely menu it was. It was literally um, a poster. Uh, it looked like an old scroll from uh, some back in the days of royalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had, we, we had like 12, 13 courses, um, each paired with some wines, and those carried through to other courses because you don't want to have too much. Uh, but it was really delicious. Talk about the wine cellar there at the herb farm.
2: Oh, the seller is really a joy to be able to work with. Uh, Ron started collecting a long time ago, so we have anywhere from twenty to 22,000 bottles on three different locations. Um, when you come into the restaurant, it's set up kind of as a show cellar, so you get to walk around. That's a lot of the ones and twos, the international collection. Um, Yeah, we've got some great old burgundies of both red and white. Uh, We have a really good Italian selection. Uh, France predominantly, I would say, from Rhone, um, much more so Bordeaux than any other region. And then, of course, we have the largest collection of Pacific Northwest wines anywhere.
1: That's great. Um, and just so our our listeners can know, first of all, the, the Herb Farm is a set menu, correct?
2: Correct. We do a pre-fee menu. It's nine courses. Officially, they're always little things that tuck in before and after. And we focus on the seasons because we have five acres of organically farmed uh, produce that we do. We have our own chickens. We raise our own pigs and our own sheep. We do full animal husbandry. We use everything from nose to tail. (laughs) Full animal uh,
1: husbandry sounds like something I'd find in but (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to go there.
2: No, so for example, uh, this week we've got uh, oxtail is on the menu. Um, It's a little crispy oxtail and wapato. Oh, yeah. Wapato is a starch that virtually no one knows about because... As civilization moved in, we've destroyed most of their natural habitats, and you have to really go out and try and find it. But it was the the mainstay of the the natives here in this valley for like 10,000 years.
1: Lake Slant area, right? Wapato Point?
2: Um, well, that's what it's named after, but it's predominantly the marshy areas that uh, you get closer to the coast. Interesting. So, yeah.
1: Uh, really fun. So people can order a bottle of wine if they choose not to have the wine pairing, which would be a Northwest pairing, but still you can have Burgundy or Italian and things like that.
2: Absolutely. We can do that for them as well. Um, we also create all our in-house botanicals for people that do not drink alcohol, or are going to be the designated driver, We make those with all natural ingredients. We create those every weekend as well. And uh, we do international beer pairings if you want to go that route.
1: Right on. So fun. I have the pleasure of uh, speaking with Bruce Ochterman, who's the beverage manager up at the Herb Farm. And coming up next, uh, in our next event we'll... Uh, My new friend, Joel Vandenbrink, who is the founder, CEO, uh, chief apple guy over at Seattle Cider. So stick around, folks. We have two more wines with Bruce, then we're going to jump into Seattle Cider right here on Happy Hour Radio.
0: Big Name. Big news. Sean Hannity. Listen and be part of history. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI One to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
1: Hey, it's magically delicious. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm hanging out with two cool cats here in the studio. And uh, welcome back. Time for round two. I've got two glasses of wine uh, from my friend, courtesy of the beverage manager uh, at the Herb Farm, Mr. Bruce Ochterman. And coming up next is Joel Vandenberg. Brink, the CEO of uh, Seattle Cider, uh, had that great Gruner Veltliner, which uh, surprisingly added 22 grams of residual sugar, but it's all about the acidity. This is something is proprietary, you made from Natchez Heights fruit. And next up, you have a white wine for me to taste, Bruce.
2: Well, it's a white wine made from a red grape, so virtually no one makes white Pinot Noirs anymore, and I think that's unfortunate, because it fits one of those characteristic Places in a menu where you're starting to build an intensity, you need something fresh, crisp, and acidic, but you need something with some weight behind it and a fruit characteristic that's a little bit different. And uh, Marcus Goodfellow, who works uh, the Mattello Winery, now the Goodfellow Winery down in the Willamette Valley, in 2011 made something called his White Pinot Noir from Stony Mountain Fruit.
1: Stony Mountain being?
2: It's uh, one single vineyard down in the Willamette Valley that okay. he works with. So he's not a, an owner of vineyard space, so he's one of those guys that actually managed to purchase fruit in, but he's got some great connections.
1: All right, so this would be a Blanc de Noir. It's a still wine, uh, mm-hmm. so you don't necessarily call them Blanc de Noirs because we associate that with being sparkling, and uh, mm-hmm. there's some very tasty ones. Um, and it's interesting, of course, white from black is what Blanc de Noir means. Uh, Pinot Noir fruit, you know, its uh, DNA-wise, um, it is identical to... Pinot Gris, right? They're yep. the same. Mm-hmm. I, I, but they have different flavors. Yeah, absolutely. Which is bizarre because you think all the flavors in the skin. But in this case, this has a little bit of uh, either leaf stirring or oak maturation. Is it a bit of both? 17 months on oak. 17 months on oak. Yeah, okay. Yep. So cause I'm getting that because the first thing that surprised me was it kind of smells like Pinot. And I, and I say that because I could say Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or Pinot Noir, of course. But uh, it, it smelled like a red wine. I think that was from the warmth of some of that oak that came off the nose. But even the palate and the weight is different than than most wines that I've, that I've tasted. It has kind of the weight of a... Uh, dry Pinot Gris from Alsace.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that totally. And plus the fact this is a 2011, so it's been sitting in bottle and maturing and changing a little bit over the last few years, which I think gives it a lot more interest as it gets a little bit older. Wow. again, yeah, Just a hint of an oxidative sort of note behind it as well.
1: Which we also get in red wines, and I think that's part of the, the charm of, of a Pinot Noir, a Burgundy, mm-hmm. where you have some age, some terroir, and you get this development that comes from the vineyard. Also a little bit of the winemaking style, but that's just natural evolution or maturity. Uh, This wine is really cool. Uh, What's it called again? It is just uh, the White Pinot Noir from
2: Marcus Goodfellow.
1: Okay, pretty straightforward there. Uh, And this is also a proprietary wine for yours?
2: No, this is not. Um, But uh, he actually did one for us previously called the Joan of Arc. And then he learned from that experience and made a White Pinot Noir on his own for the 2011
1: vintage. (laughs) Those are very trying vintages Mm -hmm. uh, to be learning things.
2: And Uh, I also think 11, because it was a cool year kind of speaks to the wine as well because he's really trying to emphasize the acidity and the alcohol level. It's a lot lower in alcohol than some of the previous vintages.
1: It's a, it's a remarkable wine. In a lot of ways, to be honest, it reminds me of Grand Cru Burgundy only because it has that weight, but also that acidity. I'm not quite getting the minerality yet,
2: but Mm -hmm. um, it's a delicious wine. What a great experience. You have a third wine. It's a red wine. Yeah, now this is a really unique, fun thing. As I mentioned, we did a lot of collaborative projects, um, but this one is something we took on on our own, where we actually rehabbed a vineyard. We did everything from pruning to uh, weed control to netting for birds, and we made this from Woodenville, Washington. It's a Pinot Noir vineyard on Hollywood Hill, which is totally cool. Um, we do a 100-mile menu each year where everything, every ingredient, every molecule is sourced within 100 miles of the restaurant. We thought we'd get as hyper-local as possible and a guy who had a uh Planted a vineyard on Hollywood Hill, had uh, made some decent Pinot Noirs for a couple of years, but he basically abandoned the vineyard because it's hard to to get Pinot Noir ripe in our climate. And Ron and Kerry, the owners, made of an offer and said, look, we will take care of it. We will rehab your vineyard and uh, we'll take the fruit and make our own wine. And he said, go for it.
1: Uh, So cool. The fact that... um a vineyard rehab is probably not going to be a reality TV show. I don't know if you have no, enough excitement no, in there. Um, but Hollywood Hills is part of the Puget Sound Appellation, the AVA here, which was uh, uh-huh. founded in 1995. was our third appellation actually, in Washington State, ironically. So Pinot Noir, with global warming, there's, there are some winners here. Um, and what vintage was this? Uh, this is the
2: 2014.
1: 14, great. So we're getting warm again. You can taste the ripe, right nice fruit, um, but also has that, that core of acidity, which makes Pinot Noir expressive and has the length to allow that that, f- that f- red fruit just to sort of lithe over that long thread of acidity. Um, just a very na- uh, faint touch of barrel here. I'm not getting any new oak on it.
2: Yeah, it was a little bit about eight months of used oak, um, when you're used French mm-hmm. oak. So, yeah, it's just more for the, the weight and uh, just get the fruit to age a little bit before going. What
1: I like about wine. this is that it's very clean. It's a very purely fruit-driven wine that has great acidity and just a touch of tannin. Now, Oregon wines are different Pinot Noir for me, and you can spot them as as sommiers. We do that. Uh, we'll talk New Zealand or or Burgundy or even some Germany stuff sometimes but mm-hmm. uh, of course um Oregon is different and this is great to have in Washington we we did it. We can do it, and so uh, so pleased that you actually have taken over that vineyard.
2: Yeah, and it's uh, it's cool that there's really no analog to that because no one else is doing anything like that anywhere near where we are. So we don't have any standard of comparison. So we basically got uh, got to write our own, which was a, a fun way to think about the presentation. It's like, what do we think a, a Puget Sound Pinot Noir from Woodinville should show like? And, <laughs> and this is it. That's this a blank is, slate. Yeah, not, and this yeah. is what this is what it should be. So.
1: Well, I guess they're sort of fill in the blank, right? He's like yeah. should be it should be red cherry and mm-hmm. ripe and um, of course you want acidity because that's what the Peter Sound offers us great sunshine yeah. we'll get there someday but Bruce Ochterman uh, from the herb farm herb farms open how often
2: uh, we serve three nights at seven o'clock Thursday Friday Saturday and a four thirty seating on Sunday all on right being with us uh, being wind and dine for about four to five hours it
1: goes it goes it's a very comfortable pace and yes. the food is not overwhelming it's um, you're, you're hungry for the next bite but mm-hmm. you're sated at the end it's enough all right so I want you to stick around because. Because right now we have Joel Vandenbrink, who is the CEO and the founder of Seattle Cider. Hey, Joel, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, Chris, it's great to be here. It is great to be here, and uh, I'm am so pleased to actually meet. Uh, you know, I've been in this industry a long, long time, and it's really fun for me to meet some of our founders. And whether it's it's a chef or it's Paul Shipman's of the world, or uh, you know the uh, uh, Lysian Brewing
3: people. But this is this is you, Seattle Cider. Let's talk about you. Joe Vandenbrink, um, are you from Seattle? I am not. I actually grew up in Michigan, a little town called Holland, which is fitting for my last name, of course. I uh, uh, moved out to Seattle in 2003, so I've been here about 15 years.
1: Okay. Well, you qualify as being local now, I think, because that was probably local, the, yeah. the We'll call it the, the second wave. And the 90s hit, then the, after, the, after 99, the crash, we hit it again, and that was right on the rise of the bubble. I'm from Wisconsin, and my father's uh, Dutch, as you know, and so, hey, we are. The, the Northwesterners are really that wanted to see some
3: water, Uh, so fun. So you're from Michigan now. Uh, What was your first alcoholic beverage? Oh, when I uh, when I turned 21, I bought a six pack of Sam Adams Cherry Wheat, Uh, and I bought it because it's made with Traverse City cherries, and uh, which is probably about an hour and a half north of where I grew up. Thunder Dan. Yeah, under Dan Marley from Traverse City.
1: My, yep. my college uh, friend uh, went uh, work there for a while, awesome. so I know all about the Traverse City. Really fun. So, really, you waited till twenty one. Come on now, we were we were tapping kegs of Brew sixty six in Lincoln Park back in the
3: day. Well, my first uh, drink technically would have been Bacardi lamon Then.
1: Oh well, wow, you're a young man. How fun is this? Uh, well, let's talk about. It. So, did you start getting? You moved to Seattle in two thousand three, and you saw all these craft beers.
3: And uh, what were you thinking? Uh, it was a whole new world for me. Uh, when I moved out from Michigan, uh, to get anything beyond Sam Adams would have been like a Michelob, Amberbach, or something like that. Line and Kugel was there, but it wasn't really in Michigan. It was in your neck of the woods. Right. Um, and so when I moved out here, I remember walking down the grocery store aisle at the Safeway down the road from me and just being amazed with all the six-packs on the shelves. It was all bottles <laughs> at that point. And my buddies and I, I had three really good friends and I, we'd sit down every Wednesday night, and we'd each bring a different six-pack. And the goal was we could not repeat something that our, that had already been bought, and that tradition lasted for about three years. were you watching m t v at the time' <laughs> I'm sorry, how do you pass
1: how do you while away that much time? was it quarters was it you know, it was before beer pong. I'm sure. Uh,
3: it was when I was in graduate school, so we had a lot of time. I see. So, uh, did you graduate? I did. Yeah. Okay.
1: Good. Did they give you a, a doctorate of something?
3: Yeah, they gave me what's called a master of divinity. Divinity. Yeah.
1: How about that? And I'm Now you are it. spending the you the Johnny Appleseed of Seattle cider here. Yep. So you uh, were into brewing. You're you're into beer anyway. And what happened next? I mean, you put on 20 pounds, even though you were a starving grad student.
3: Yeah. So I started. Uh, I started a hobby of brewing a beer in my kitchen. I had 600 square feet when I lived over uh, near Sandpoint and uh, was right around the corner from Bob's homebrew supply, which is uh, still there to this day, which is awesome. And uh, Bob helped me get my start brewing beer in my kitchen. And then I moved on to uh, that point. I had made enough that I wanted to try to make a real go at it. Rented 170 square feet in North Fremont at an active space unit up there. And I made 15 gallons at a time. Kept my day job. I'd come brew beer at 4 a.m. till 8 a.m. And then I'd go off and do my day job, go to graduate school and do all the other work that required running a business for about a year and a half before I signed a real lease down in Soto and started with 2,400 square feet down there. And now, 10 years later, we have 36,000.
1: So were you a bootlegger bootlegger back in uh, the, the active space? I mean, you were brewing 15 gallons. Obviously, you weren't consuming yourself. You must have been sharing it with media types like me.
3: Yeah, I was. I got my license, filled out all the paperwork to do that. I was a legit brewery. Uh, in so, an active space? You in mean? an active space, yeah. The requirement oh, wow. to be a brewery was you needed water and you needed electricity. And Active Space had a sink in the corner and Wait. one outlet. There goes the moonshine and things. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> wow,
1: that's really cool. So um, was Bob's, you go to the Duchess Tavern there in the U District?
3: I went to the Duchess Tavern a lot. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, How right fun. around the corner.
1: Well, uh, I, I love it. I'm, I've got Bruce Ochterman, the uh, beverage manager for the Herb Farm, and speaking with Joel Vandenbrink, who is the founder and CEO of Seattle Saturday. He's going to tell us all about his story when we come back right here on 570 KVI.
0: Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 8 a.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chen.
1: All right. uh, I have a three-leaf clover or something. Four-leaf clover. I don't know what I got. I got uh, a lot of cider in front of me with two cool cats. Uh, Joel Vandenbrink is the CEO and founder of Seattle Cider. We were chatting about, uh, how he got into this, uh, world of fermentation, being a grad student here at the UW, I, I would imagine, or was it SU or?
3: It was a small school that's in Belltown, actually. It's in Belltown. Uh-huh. Oh,
1: that's right, because you are a master of divinity, which, uh, I, I'm digging on this Saturday night, because it is still Lent, uh, and, uh, I gave up bread, which means I can't have any beer. Uh, but let's talk about cider. You were into brewing. You just got a license. You created a 22,000 square foot place, you said?
3: 36,000. 36.
1: 36. Wow. And that, are you still brewing beer?
3: We're still brewing beer, yeah. What? Yeah, Two Beers Brewing Company has been around now for 10 and a half years. Uh, We uh, will do about 7,000 barrels this year, so we're right in that kind of mid-range for breweries. We're not large. We're not small. We do cans and bottles and draft. All right. You're the
1: Detroit Lions of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally. Yep. NFL breweries. Uh, well, that is cool. I had no idea. Here I'm in. I'm talking about you are the CEO of Two Beers Brewing. Mm-hmm. All right. And the brewmaster and the, and the shoveler and the salesman and probably the delivery guy, too. All right. So somehow an apple hit your head and you said what?
3: Yeah. So five years ago, uh, I had the idea along with an employee at the time. Uh, to start cider. I was seeing Angry Orchard pop up everywhere in the Northwest. This yeah. was when cider was <laughs> on the rise. It was they, terrible. They sort of brought back an American tradition. Cider is the original American beverage. Uh, a lot of people think Johnny Appleseed planted apple trees for eating. Uh, that's not the truth. He planted them for fermenting. That's right. And uh, so it's the original American beverage and I saw a huge opportunity in Seattle. Nobody was actually making hard cider in the Seattle city limits. Uh, they were all outside the limit. Um, and they also weren't making something that was accessible. Was it
1: Spire local? Or was that Spires, California?
3: Spire's down in Olympia.
1: Olympia. Okay, so that, it was local. So yeah, yeah so it is I remember local.
3: in the '90s. Yep, and they're still around. They're uh, they're partnered with Fishburne at this point. Yep. Um, and so there's a huge opportunity to specialize in dry to off dry ciders, because mm-hmm. as I talked with a lot of my friends, some of the sweet stuff you would get sick of pretty quickly. Didn't, you weren't able to do a lot of fun stuff with fermentation because you killed it with sugar, and so we wanted to come out and make real ingredients and off dry and dry ciders. So everything. This sounds ferment- like a brewer to me. You sound Doesn't like it? such a brewer.
1: Yeah, Reinheitsgebot of apple guys.
3: Totally. So everything <laughs> we use is real, uh, and we we actually ferment with it. We don't make a base cider. Tangerine turmeric is made with real tangerine and turmeric, and basil mint made with real basil mint. Surprised the color is not orange. I know. You had the some fancy little spell on it because people will freak out, <laughs> they drink and
1: rest well amazing, and so this was what five years ago this was five years no, ago wait yeah. now that you it seems it feels like you 've been around a lot longer than that but I think the days and years are starting to blur. <laughs> that's all that's happening here. Uh, Seattle Cider Company, was that uh, you or, or your employee who came up with that name?
3: That was mine that I uh, luckily was able to snag uh, a long time ago, actually. I had the idea probably seven years ago and snagged the idea then, and then just sat on the idea for a couple of years uh, before it actually became a uh, That's real. how you
1: do it. I know. I did the same thing with a lot of my events, and like, okay, just sit on that dot-com for a while or the trademark if you're going to step up. Uh, really neat. So, you, what was the first cider? It was just uh, Semi-dry, or what was it called?
3: It was semi-sweet when we opened up in August of 2013. We had semi-sweet, dry, and pumpkin spice. Wow.
1: Were you a winner at the Elysian Great Pumpkin Brew Fest or something to jump into that pumpkin thing, or did Starbucks sort of go... They had something going on.
3: That came from my brewing world as well. Uh, There's a lot of pumpkin spice beers. Elysian uh, is known for them, of course, and so we piggybacked off of that idea.
1: Yeah, wow, really fun. So you brought three, uh, actually you brought four ciders today. I know we're going to pour three. We'll see how many we can chug-a-lug, or taste,
3: I should say, and and review and evaluate and experience, of course. Uh, What's the first one? The first one is Gin Botanical. Uh, This is our current spring seasonal. Uh, It's new in a can for us, actually, this year. We had it in a bottle in limited draft format the last year. Uh, three to four years but we put it in a can this year because it was really popular and so one of the fun things about this product is we partner with batch 206 out of interbay they make their gin called counter gin and uh, then once they make that we pick up their spent botanicals and throw them in with our fresh pressed apple juice
1: now do you have to shovel them yourself?
3: <laughs> they shovel them into brutes, luckily, and we go with the truck. But then we have to shovel them into our fermenter.
1: I see. Is there a quid pro quo? Do they give you? Uh, do you give them some cider to sort of taste it, or a little trading on a little horse trading, so to speak?
3: There's always a trade.
1: Um, what a fun deal! Uh, Batch 206. Of course, we have a, a, a longtime friend uh, Jeff Steichen involved with that. So I appreciate his uh, experience in the industry, which is very experienced. Um, this is amazing. Now I never would have thought. About having a gin style hard cider, um, it it you have just a touch of sugar here because I think that's softening some of the bitterness I would find with some of those botanicals, um, but that's okay because our we like fruit phenols with sugar. I mean we're we're wired that way. Bruce, did you pour some of this?
2: Oh No, I haven't tried it yet. Well,
1: let's get you, uh, uh, we've got Bruce Ochterman, the beverage manager for the herb farm. Uh, This would be in your 100-mile range. Uh, This is the gin botanicals. So how many botanicals are in here, Joel?
3: There are seven botanicals. Uh, Juniper berry and star anise are the dominant ones, but we also have uh, lavender, lemon, Mm. and a few other ones as well.
1: What's really amazing is that each of those uh, botanicals actually has a moment on the palate. I've got the juniper first, then I had the star anise, then I got lavender, and then the rest sort of blended in as it finishes because I started to get the acidity there. And so it's just, I think those receptors were full with all that first information. Uh, Delicious. Now, this is a... This is probably 55 degrees, right? This is a cool temp, maybe 50 degrees?
3: Yeah, probably 50 degrees. Uh, We like it to warm up a bit because that's where you get some of those uh, aromatics start to pop. If you uh, crack it right away and drink it out of your fridge, you'll start to notice about a a third of the way through the can, you'll start to get some new aromas from it. Uh, Bruce, what do you think?
2: Yeah, very much like wine, it changes as it warms up quite a bit. So you got to pay attention to those sorts of things. Um, I'm not generally a gin fan. It's just one of my least favorite uh, types of hard spirits. But that being said, this is really drinkable. Yeah, I it's
1: mean- really drinkable. In fact, I love that it finishes with an acidic note. It's got an elegance to it and a length which I think is beyond most mere poppet and, 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 and hocket and cider
3: kind of things. Um, so fun. So
1: Seattle cider. How many ciders do you produce? all year.
3: So we have five-year-round ciders, uh, as well as a quarterly rotating seasonal, and then a whole bunch of limited one-off's that we sell at the Woods Tasting Room down in Soto. All right, I've been there. I mean,
1: we had the first cider awards there. Yeah, the Pwca. Yeah, I, you know, it was funny. I was like, "We got to bring that back," but I kind of brought it back. So <laughs> we're gonna get there. Uh, you sell in four packs. Are, are these available on tap for any of our, um, you know, taverns or bars or restaurants? Listening.
3: Yeah, they are. We uh, sell to bars and restaurants around uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Alaska, and 14 other states around wow. the country. Man, this is
1: big. Yeah, big. And, uh, it's, it's so funny. I had Charles Smith, right? Kate with, uh, Charles Smith Wines. Um, and, and he showed up with like a black t-shirt and regular Joe because I know that life has changed a bit for him and for you because, uh, of you your success and congratulations. Uh, well, let's go on to this, uh, next, uh, cider. And I didn't say wine because I typically do say wine. This is called tangerine turmeric.
3: Yeah, so this is a brand new product for us. It actually just came out at the tail end of January. Uh, turmeric is really popular these days. I actually juice turmeric uh, nearly every morning uh, because I actually have Crohn's disease. And so this is good for anti-inflammatory. And so when I started to develop this cider, I wanted to pair the sort of earthiness of the turmeric root with kind of a sweet citrus. And so that's why we brought in the tangerine. So we get some of the tangerine on the nose, and then it'll linger with that sound of kind of subtle spice and earth from the uh, turmeric root.
1: Well, um, I'm into turmeric as well, because I've just got bad joints, <laughs> no, no uh, um, cartilage anymore, and I need that. Uh, this is really tasty, too. This is an acquired taste now. This has a little more going on, which sort of separates itself from perhaps the uh, uh, the more friendly um, or reminiscent aromas of the gin botanicals. I think we're, as an adult, we're kind of used to that.
2: This one's different, because turmeric is new. Mm-hmm. Bruce? Yeah, it's one of those spice notes that most of us aren't really all that familiar with, especially in a beverage. But it definitely plays to, as you mentioned, everybody who's getting older and I've got bad joints, too. I take (laughs) turmeric every single day. And I just love this. This is, to me, something that would be really, really food-friendly, especially with those earthy notes behind it as well. Um, If you're looking for an alternative like lamb kebabs with, you know, roasted peppers out on the back grill. Um, yeah, this is definitely going to fit it.
1: Well, it's interesting because I, I get some pyrazines on this. There's that pepper note or green bell pepper here, and it reminds me of so- uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. That's, that's as close of a description as I can get because uh, it's got a little bit of spice um, but also some green. And the acid is nice and bright. What
3: apples go into these ciders? So it's predominantly Granny Smith. Uh, depending really? On, depending on the time of year and the acidity and bricks of the apples, it's anywhere between 60 and 75% granny. We love the high acid from those. Uh, and then we balance out that acidity with some red Delicious, some Fuji, and some other apples.
1: Okay, so it sounds like it's mostly Washington state.
3: It's all 100% Washington
1: state. Wow. Cool. All right. Well, that's good cuz you get some agriculture grants when you want to do business. Yeah, and it's
3: just supporting the local economy, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, we, it stays here. That's what I tell people. I mean, you know, you buy that French wine, it goes to California, then back to New Jersey, then goes to, you know, all that other stuff. Everyone's got a cut. But this is delicious. You sell in four packs. Um what's a typical four pack price for some of the Seattle Cider products?
3: It's about 9.99 or 10.99 depending upon the store.
1: All right. And what I like to see is that these aren't your your mass-produced, well, I should say, the big boy Budweiser 5% ciders. These are, have a little more going because they're craft-made.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, we get all of the sugar from the, from the apple, and we don't uh, dilute these down at all. We keep it at 6.9% ABV. All right, can't go wrong with 6.9.
2: Yeah, I also love the fact that you're
3: doing everything in
2: cans. I've seen a big transition to that from the craft brewers to the cider guys. And I just think cans make so much more sense. Um,
1: it's a mini keg.
2: Yeah. <laughs> hey, stick
1: around, folks. I've got Joel Vandenbrink, who is the founder of Two Beers Brewing and Seattle Cider Company, and my pal, Bruce Octaman of the Herb Farm. Stick around for a final segment right here on Happy Hour Radio. <laughs>
0: Unapologetically American. Period. Kirby Wilbur, Weekdays, 10 to noon. Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan.
1: All right, celebrating my Irish heritage today with uh, two cool cats, Bruce Ochterman, the beverage manager of the Herb Farm, and Joel Vandenbrink, the CEO of Two Beers Brewing and Seattle Cider Company. We just had uh, two phenomenal tastes. Uh, The first was the Gin Botanicals Cider, and uh, the second was the Tangerine Turmeric, um, which is an acquired taste, but it's good for you in many (laughs) different ways, especially if you're an old cat like me.
3: Uh, We have a third cider. Joel, what do you have? So I brought in our new uh, limited edition Cucumber Hibiscus. This one came out this year as well uh, and is the creation of one of my assistant cider makers, Ben. Uh, When he was down in Mexico on vacation about a year and a half ago, he was enjoying some hibiscus margaritas and came back with the lovely idea of combining that with the uh, Northwest favorite, the cucumber. And uh, this drinks and looks like a rosé. It's got brilliant acidity and it's nice and crisp. All right, uh, Bruce, I want you to chime in first
2: on this. You know what's interesting? We actually did one of our alcohol-free pairings a while back with a cucumber hibiscus. And to me, these two flavors work so well together. I mean, the nose is balanced. It's just really bright. And with that rosé, we did a sparkling style. It was exactly, well, not exactly like this, but the thought with no alcohol behind it. So I totally get this. This is something that would, I would love as a starter in, in place of a rosé champagne.
1: Well, okay, you're my cheap date. I like that. <laughs> well, let's talk about this now. Is hibiscus a winter flower, or is it a South American flower? Because I would expect you to have uh, some fresh ingredients. You said call this seasonal.
3: Yeah, and so us, we have to import it. Uh, we use a company based out of California, and they we get the dried flowers from them. So we import it from uh, where they have access to it.
1: All right, and uh, the apples again. Is this is a uh, It's pretty sharp. Fuji and Granny? Granny.
3: Granny Granny and Fuji are delicious. Yeah, that is
1: really sharp, because that's sharper than Fuji, I think. And I I never assumed that Granny, in my my mind, Fuji was always the highest, right? But maybe, you know. Yeah, I think
3: Granny is higher on acidity than Fuji.
1: Is it? All right, so it's all that malic acid. So that makes Mm -hmm. sense. All right, I just don't eat those, (laughs) because Fuji tastes better. Uh, Super cool wine. I'm going to call it a wine, because it tastes like a wine. It drinks like a wine. Um, But this is... uh, this is kind of the uh, cabinet style of wines, right? 6.9% again? hmm Man, I like that. This is consistent. And this comes in
3: bottles because it's a seasonal? This comes in bottles because it's seasonal and also comes on draft. Uh, so we expect this one to do really big things this summer uh, when you're out on a oh. patio or you're sitting in a bar in the sun you see a pink beverage go by, you're just going to want a 6.9% pink All beverage. Right.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a little envious of how good that is, because I make some rosé, and that's really damn good. Um, congratulations. Uh, more information, people want to learn more about Two Beers Brewing or Seattle Cider Company?
3: Yeah, the best place to come is to visit us. We're open seven days a week down in Soto. We're just off of uh, the Viaduct down by Arena Sports or the Hudson Bar down there. We open at 3 o'clock every day during the week and 1 o'clock on weekends. Alright, and uh, Live
1: music, food, or
3: just. We have food, full restaurant, and we have 24 taps, 12 cider and 12 beer.
1: Okay. And that's all. Well, Two Beers Brewing, right? That's all two you? Beers or brewing, do you have yeah. a guest, like, uh, guest keg or a guest it's what all what two... Firkin.
3: Yeah, right. <laughs> Firkin, Firkin guest. Golden Gates. Uh, we have 12 Two Beers Taps and 12 Seattle Cider Taps.
1: Awesome. Uh, Joel Vandenbrink from uh, Two Beers Brewing and Seattle Cider. Thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio.
3: Yeah, thank you.
2: Hey, Bruce, do you have any cool things coming up for the Herb Farm up there in Winville? Well, we always love to move into the summertime, and because we are so garden-driven, it's been really an interesting winter. We have our early greens. We're using sorrel and mint and all those fresh things. So we actually are looking at a Sauvignon Blanc coming up probably for our next menu. Um, We do the Chambers of the Sea, which features uh, fresh shellfish. Then we just start moving into something really kind of cool. We're calling the Spring Foragers. We've never done this menu before. Things always change. And we're basically looking at foraged items that have kind of disappeared, as I mentioned, things like wapato and Camus bulb and Pacific silverweed that no one serves in restaurants anymore. So if you're looking for something totally new you know give the herb farm a try.
1: Pacific Silverweed. Pacific huh? silverweed. We're finally getting there.
2: Yeah, the classic pairing with sil- Pacific Silverweed is...
1: <laughs> yeah, mmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, you're gonna huh. have to come over It's to a find brownie. <laughs> no. Oh, Bruce Ochtman, hey, what a, what a treat. Thanks so much for sharing uh, you, your wines and of course the story with the herb farm. Hey folks, this month is uh, Washington Wine Month and the culmination of Washington Wine Month is actually next weekend. It starts on Thursday and it's called Taste Washington. We have a Thursday night event, we have the new vintage on Friday night, and of course, the grand tasting on Saturday and Sunday. Now, we offer, uh, I should say, we, um, as a wine professional, as always, we, they have some cool classes that you can go in and, and meet some of the winemakers and some panelists and some experts, per se, um, and talk about some wines, taste some wines, and really learn the inner story about some of our Washington wines and how they, uh, how they, compete with the uh the world of wine. So the grand tasting is both Saturday and Sunday. It's totally worth it. I would suggest really to buy the the full weekend pass because it, it's it's a great weekend. Um you might miss some march madness though, but really Try to spit. Uh, it's important to taste all the wines, uh, to taste a few, but be sure to spit because it's about that one moment. Uh, and be sure to hydrate. And before you get there, eat lots and lots of food so you have a nice base. Um, you'll, you'll be absorbing alcohol. There's Of course, there's lots of food there, so come a little bit hungry. Um, but there'll be classes. There'll be chefs. There'll be lots of fun stuff. It's all at Taste Washington, tastewashington.org. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you there. Hope you enjoy the show. Remember, folks, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.